the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sometimes not everything is as it seems. It's a common experience of man to be in a particular situation and then to dig a little deeper only to find that things are much more complicated than you first thought. Despite this, we are often content to know things superficially because anything more would be too shocking, too difficult, or simply too much work. This is especially true when it comes to the matter of sin. It's easy to stop at saying, well, what I did was wrong. I need to stop doing it. Without delving into the deeper heart issue or try to see things from God's perspective through the Scriptures. But when you do take the time to do that, you will see that sin is more than just skin deep. There are intricate reasonings and explanations that increase your level of responsibility, but also your potential for holiness, to deal with your heart, to weed it out, to see things as God sees them. We've seen this very clearly in 1 Corinthians. Basically still on the topic of gray areas, we're learning more and more why Paul had a problem with Christians partaking of meals at pagan temples. And mind you, they weren't going in for the worship. They were bypassing the part where the animal was actually sacrificed. They were just coming afterwards for the birthday party or the wedding celebration. But Paul says it's not just dinner. It's not just good meat. And it's not just about causing others to stumble as we have seen thus far. We have undergone an expose of sorts as we look at the Corinthians and this particular issue. And in this final section on the topic, Paul really lifts the blinders off as he explains the true depravity of partaking of such things. This morning we find ourselves in verses 14 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 14 through 22. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is nothing? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? This morning and next, we will see five concluding realities of this issue, this sin of idolatry. 
And again, I want to remind you that what Paul is addressing is not full-blown participation or idol worship. It's simply having a meal at an idol's temple. And so he concludes this issue and brings it home and shows us indeed how sinful and, as we've just read, demonic this is. The first concluding reality of idolatry, we'll look at two this time, is the reality of inference. The reality of inference. Again, in verses 14 and 15, I'll read those for you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Up to this point, Paul has given us plenty of reasons to have nothing to do with idolatry. He's given us clear examples of how the Israelites turned to idolatry despite their incredible blessings, which you remember included the physical presence of God in the form of the fire and the cloud, the daily, every morning, miraculous provision of food out of nowhere. They saw it. He was with them. And yet somehow in their hearts they found it okay to turn from him and turn to idolatry and its accompanying sexual immorality despite all of this. In his recounting, Paul does the Old Testament and God justice by including the consequences. Death, plague, destruction. And this was all a warning to the Corinthians and to us of the ease in which we can fall prey to temptation. He gives us the additional motivation to avoid such things in verse 13 that we saw last time when he tells us that all temptation has a God-given way of escape. You can endure it. You can bear it because God provides a way of escape. How do you know I can survive the fire? Because you're standing next to the door and you can exit the room. It is your choice. Stay there and let the flames engulf you, or just walk out. It's always there. But unlike a fire, the way out, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, is never blocked. It's always there. It's open. God has given a way of escape. And with all of that in mind, he now concludes or infers, as indicated by this word, therefore, that all Christians must flee idolatry. Though not a major theological point in this context, we cannot overlook the fact that Paul once again refers to them as my beloved. This shows us not only Paul's affection for them, but also shows us that he is pleading with them. There's a sense of urgency here. You've got to stop doing this. Yes, he is blunt. Yes, he is strict. Yes, he is even harsh with them at times. But it's only because he loves them. And as a fellow Christian, loving them means desiring their spiritual walk to be strong, their lives to be God-honoring. This is what loving one another means. Not just for an apostle, not just for a pastor, but for all of us. It's not about people's happiness. It's not about people's comfort. If you as a Christian truly love another Christian or a non-Christian for that matter, your primary concern is their relationship with God, even if it hurts their feelings or makes them uncomfortable. And in this particular context, for that to happen, they must flee from idolatry. In other words, Paul says, run and keep running. 
the Greek tense indicates that this is to be a way of life. In other words, don't just run from that one temple meal. Don't just be convicted and cancel your plans at the temple tonight, but stay away and keep on staying away until you are no longer in this earth, this life. Because if you've been tempted once, then you must continually be aware, be vigilant, be alert for temptation may come again and again and then yet again. When he says to flee, he means have nothing to do with. Nothing. It means don't even trifle with it. Don't even toy with it. Don't linger around outside the courtyard. We've seen how seriously God takes this. And we should take it just as seriously. And by way of reminder, how seriously God takes it was him killing thousands of his chosen people. You see, God takes it seriously because he knows the dangers of such things and how it reflects or affects our relationship with him. He takes these things seriously because it violates his very essence, his character. And as we have seen and we'll see again later, how it invokes his judgment because of his holy character for the believer discipline. If there was indeed a fire in my house that was out of control, the first thing I would do would be to run and find my children. I would tell them, run out of the house. Flee, as Paul says. And when I said that, when I say that, I wouldn't be saying walk. I would be saying run as fast as you can. I wouldn't be telling them to stay in the house, just go to another room. Because the fire is going to break through that wall pretty soon. I wouldn't mean run as fast as you can just outside the front door and stay on the front step. I wouldn't even mean go and stay in the front yard. I would mean run and keep on running, get away, then stay away as far as possible until I or a fireman or a policeman comes and brings you back. And that is what Paul is saying about idolatry and all sin and temptation for that matter. In the context of the Corinthians and their idolatry, he says, don't just skip the ritual sacrifice, but come, come for the meal. As the Corinthians, some Corinthians were doing, he says, flee. Don't even walk by that temple anymore if you're tempted to go in there to eat. Flee. Don't just skip parts of it and the rest are okay. Flee. Run away. Don't just search Google and stare at the names of the different websites without clicking on them. Don't even get on the computer. Don't just flee what tempts you in terms of worldly things. Don't just peruse the exotic car magazines but not go to the dealership. Don't even think about it. Flee. Run away. Flee idolatry. You see, what the Corinthians were doing by eating at the temple feasts 
was not fleeing. What you are doing when you just search things on Google or just play around in your mind, let your mind wander about riches or impurity or anger or revenge or whatever it is you're tempted by, is you're not running away from the house fire. You've kind of gone out of the way, but you're still close enough to get burned. You're still watching the flames. You can feel the heat. You can smell and breathe the smoke. You're not running away. You're staying close. You're too confident. You think you're okay. You're walking the line with one foot in the Scriptures and one foot in the world. Not only that, in a form of spiritual overconfidence that we talked about last week, by enjoying the fruits of pagan sacrifices or enjoying the mental gymnastics of fantasizing about things of the world, we're not just standing too close to the fire, we are arrogantly roasting marshmallows right by it. So we think we can do it. Arrogance and thinking we won't give in to temptation or perhaps just arrogance and thinking you can flirt with sin and still honor God. We must flee. And what Paul is saying through his New Testament warning and Old Testament recollections is that sooner or later, if you do not flee, you will get burned. And even if you don't, what you're doing now in playing around dishonors God. Flee idolatry of any form, flee sin of any form. Now, by this point in his discourse, this has become very clear to us and to the Corinthians. They get it. They actually probably understand the Old Testament illustrations more thoroughly and deeply than we do, being surrounded by a Jewish culture, some of them Jews themselves. Which is why in verse 15, he says that their own logic and wisdom would tell them that they need to run away. He's not being sarcastic here when he calls them wise, although there are times where he has done this sarcastically. Here he is not. He is appealing to their common sense. He is appealing to their spirit-informed consciences. Basically, what he's saying is, after everything I've explained, I know you get this. I trust you. You're Christians. You know what's going on. You're not dummies. You're wise. You have the ability to come to the right conclusion here. And the result is that they'll naturally, as Paul says here, judge what he says. Not judge in the sense of determining if Paul is right or wrong, but in their own minds, bringing all of this evidence to its natural conclusion, which is idolatry is to be avoided. Make the decision. You get it. You're smart. And in judging, they should then make a resulting decision about their behavior and actions, not just intellectually, not just in their minds and hearts saying, I'm going to do this, but actually moving forward and doing it, fleeing, avoiding. But Paul's not done. Although he has given the Corinthians and us plenty of information to understand understand the dangers of idolatry from past examples, He goes on to bring this into the present by way of the Lord's table, what we refer to as the Lord's Supper or communion. 
the, at our church, monthly remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ by taking of the elements. Biblically, ripping up a loaf of bread and having some wine for us, a little wafer and some juice. And it begins this explanation in the next verse, which brings us to our next point, our next concluding reality of idolatry, and that is the reality of, of identification. We've seen the reality of inference. They can easily infer, con- conclude to the right decision, and now the reality of identification. We'll see this in verses 16 through 18, and we'll spend quite a bit of time here. He writes in verses 16 and 18 through 18, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? It's just communion. Verse 17, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In order to explain the depths and the dangers of partaking in any part of idol worship, Paul sets up the reality of what the Lord's table is for Christians. This is the backdrop. This is the positive. This is the good. This is what we practice and do. And then he will go on to the negative. You know that the Lord's table was instituted by Jesus Christ himself on the night he was betrayed. It was towards the end of a meal with the disciples, the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And we read at the end of the meal in Matthew 26, we read this, verses 26 through 30. It's the passage I read when we take communion here. Matthew 26, 26 and following. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Well, that's different. They'd never heard him say something like that before at a meal with a visual contact there, a visual illustration. He goes on, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that was it. Verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All four Gospels give an account of this last meal with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, including Christ's institution of communion. It is this practice of communion that Paul explains in verse 17 of our passage this morning. We know that, as Jesus said, we do this in remembrance of Him. We do it to remember Him, specifically to remember His sacrifice on the cross. But there's a bit more to it. First, Paul refers to the cup of blessing. What this is and what we saw with the Last Supper is at the end of a traditional Jewish meal, there would be one final cup of wine that they would share together. And the most honored guest at the table for that particular meal would lift it up and then give some sort of benediction or blessing. At the annual Passover meal, that final cup was called the cup of blessing. In communion, this translates simply to the cup, the juice that we drink. 
And Paul goes on and says, when we drink, it is, quote, a sharing in the blood of Christ. The blood here not merely refers to the blood that coursed through his veins because he was human. It is a reference specifically to the blood that was shed, that was spilt, that was bled on the cross. In other words, a sharing in the blood of Christ is a sharing in the death of Christ. Then you have the bread. This refers to the first element of the Lord's Supper. The bread that he took and that we take is a literal bread, or for us, some derivative of bread, a cracker, a wafer. At the actual Last Supper and in the early church, they would have one literal loaf of bread that they would break apart and pass out. It wasn't just for that particular meal. That's just how they ate. We kind of do that today in our meals, but mom or dad slices it up or the factory slices it up for you, and then we put it on everyone's plate, but it all came from the same dough, the same loaf of bread. That's important in a minute. For communion, we've streamlined it a little bit in the American modern church, make it more efficient and sanitary, but it's the same thing, same idea. The breaking of the bread, mind you, is not symbolic of the breaking of his body. We don't have something like that at the cross as we do with the spilling of the blood. Again, it's simply because back then you had one loaf that needed to be broken into pieces, and it was important that they were sharing that piece of bread, that loaf of bread, among the participants, the importance we'll see in a second. So when he says there is one bread, it's all because it's eaten from the same loaf. Symbolically, this refers to his body and again to the death of that body for our sakes. So, when we drink of the cup and eat the bread during communion in remembrance of Christ, it is to specifically remember His death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when Paul says that we share in the cup and bread, we are sharing in His death. The word that he uses there, translated sharing in our Bibles, it's the same word that is translated as fellowship fellowship. And what it means here is that we have fellowship with His death. We participate in His death. Not that we die on a cross, but we receive and partake in the blessings that flow from His death, that are possible because of His death, such as forgiveness of sins, redemption, reconciliation, adoption into the family of God. We can go on and on. All of it is what we have what is represented in communion that we remember as we participate in fellowship with his death. And this can all be summarized in the phrase, new covenant. Turn ahead a page or so to verse 25 of chapter 11. Later, Paul will explain communion even more. This is the passage I refer to when we take communion, talking about uh, the warning against taking it in an unworthy manner. It's from this section. We'll look at verse 25. Paul writes, In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you catch this? This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. It was in his death, which we remember in taking communion, drinking that cup, that he enacted the new covenant. He said, this cup is the new covenant, but in my blood. That's significant. In the old covenant, in the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificial animals had to be spilt over and over and over again. In Christ and in his blood, the new covenant was put into effect, thereby eliminating the need for the temporary sacrifice, those animals, because the permanent, once-for-all sacrifice has come. That's why we're told not to do this anymore. We don't need to do this. We, we just take the, the cup and, the, uh, and communion as remembrance. It's symbolic. It's, it, it's commanded, so it's sin if we don't do it, but it's not necessary for the forgiveness of sins as it was in the Old Covenant because Christ has come. His blood was spilt. He was the perfect and permanent lamb. Side note, as I just mentioned, we are commanded to take communion, but it is a symbolic remembrance. In other words, if you miss communion for a month, it does not mean that you lose fellowship with Christ and his death until you are able to take it. That's not what it means. Nor is a new believer outside of fellowship with Christ until he has a chance to take communion. Okay? Commanded, yes, but also symbolic. Not necessary for salvation and forgiveness. The assumption here is that communion or the Lord's table is a normal part of the Christian life and therefore emblematic of all believers' fellowship with the Lord. So it is very important. It must be done regularly. But back to our text. Partaking of this most holy of meals identifies the participants with the body and blood, that is the death and sacrifice of Christ and all that entails in terms of privileges and blessings for the believer. In the same way, in the Old Testament, those who participated in the Passover meal shared in the benefits of the Passover sacrifice. In the very first Passover, remember this, where the angel of death literally passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt in Exodus 12, 27. Those who participated in the Passover meal, their lives were spared. Their firstborn were not killed. The angel of death passed over their home. And just as we do with communion today, in Deuteronomy 16.3, the Israelites were told that they were to sacrifice the Passover to the Lord so that they would remember for the rest of their lives the day they were delivered from Egypt. This was an ongoing celebration that they were to participate in in remembrance of that first Passover in their deliverance from Egypt, just as we take communion to remember the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jews still do this. I have atheist Jewish by ethnicity friends that still celebrate the Passover meal 
because it is just part of their culture now. Obviously, for more significant reasons, communion should be a part of our culture as well as believers to remember what was done for us. All of this foreshadowing, remember the word type and typology, the ultimate and permanent Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. So just as the freed Jews were to remember and participate in the blessings of that first Passover when their lives were spared and freed, so we remember and participate in the blessings of Christ's sacrifice when our lives were spared and freed, not physically, but spiritually. Our identification as believers is tied up in what Christ has done and has done for us. Another way of putting that is our lives are tied up in the gospel. And it is symbolized in this meal. We don't have an actual meal. These days, most churches do not in our country. But I'm referring to the bread and the juice. Now, Paul goes on in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10 to tell us that there's more to this. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I think most Christians are familiar with the identification with Christ in communion. But what Paul is saying here is that communion also identifies us with each other. Which, when you understand the body of Christ and the church, is redundant. To be identified with Christ means to be identified with the body of Christ. I don't mean the body in his death as we mentioned earlier, but the body, the church. There is nowhere in Scripture where it says you can just be a Christian on your own and have nothing to do with other believers, with the local church, with the universal church. You might have heard the term Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing. You can't do it. Or if you try, it is unbiblical. There's a reason Christ created the church. There's a reason he set out, sent out the disciples to establish churches everywhere. It wasn't just for big revival meetings. It was so that they could live out their unity in Jesus Christ and unity with one another. And if you have any idea what I'm talking about, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. There are many markers of fellowship And one of the most significant is participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord's table brings us together as a unique community of God's chosen. I mean, think about it. No one else does this. This is unique to us. There are many unbelievers who will go to church, visit churches, Christmas, Easter, go with family, go for a wedding or special celebration, something like that. There are unbelievers who hang out together in groups. There are atheists who study the Bible. Well, one of the markers that makes us unique in terms of what we do that the world can see within our society is taking communion together. It brings us together as a unique community of God's chosen. 
Because not only do we do it together, and not only does no one else do it, but only do Christians understand the significance of what it is and have the reality of what that symbolizes in our hearts and in our lives. The connection to the bread is that it is in His death and resurrection that the church was established. We exist because of what we remember in communion. Paul says, though there are many of us, we all make up a singular body, the body of Christ. Now, back in Exodus 12, the Passover, God declared that all the Israelites were to participate in the Passover. And to make sure they did, there was threat of death if they weren't passed over. And God says to Moses, there are to be no exceptions. Everyone must do this. And we don't have time to go there, but you understand that this wasn't a simple, all right, sure, yeah, we'll just lock the door. There was a whole process that involved days of planning. This Passover was a common experience for the nation that unified them in a unique and holy way. And even that first Passover that was to be celebrated year after year, God said every Israelite had to do that as well. Again, this common experience that united them as God's people. So too, again, in taking communion, we are all unified in a unique and holy way when we participate in communion. When we talk about fellowship, right, we talk about that a lot. We have fellowship with one another. It simply means, if you look at the, just the definition of the word, it simply means we have something in common. Now, you probably wouldn't do this, but you could technically use the word to speak of anything that binds two or more people together, any common interest, the same home team, an ethnicity, uh, a cycling club, whatever it is. Now, we understand in the Scripture's context, we mean fellowship in Christ. And there is nothing as special or unique as participation in the cross of Christ. We are social beings. You know this. Introverts, you know this too. There is a need for social interaction to some degree. God created us this way. You say, no, no, I, I, don't, I can't stand people. That's sin. That's not being an introvert. Okay? Don't excuse your pride and your anger or whatever it is as being an introvert. God created us to be social. God created us to have friends, to have the church, have the nation Israel back then. God created us for many of us to be married, to have that interaction. And so, how much more? Is it a blessing to have fellowship with the church? Secular society strives to find commonality in something because they too are social beings. They want to find some way to, quote, fellowship if we could put it that way, even if, if it's a form of immorality or sin. They just want to find something in common with other people. And when you understand that, that that is a common theme of all humanity, 
how much more is our fellowship special because we are united in a way that is only possible in the very one who made us social beings. And you can think and conclude, rightly so, that he made us social beings so we would find our commonality in him, not in immorality or some mundane worldly thing. Fellowship in Christ, in God. So not only does communion equate to fellowship with Christ, as we saw earlier, communion equates to fellowship with one another. And in both of those, the stress on the blood of Christ highlights the seriousness of these relationships. It's not just, oh, I go to the same church. Oh, yeah, we're, we're both evangelical. We're both Protestant. No. You're both recipients of the benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ. That should change our perspective of how we treat other believers, how we view them. You say blood is thicker than water. Well, Christ's blood is thicker than all other blood in that analogy. It should be like glue. It's so thick to bind us together. Do this in remembrance of me. What? The body and blood, my sacrifice. Christ did not institute a remembrance of his parables. He didn't say, remember my miracles, that we would live them out and participate in them. He instituted a remembrance of his death. Not only because it's a source of who we are, but also because he's talking about a covenantal relationship that we have with him. Not just you, not just me, all of us together. From the very beginning, God established blood as the means of sealing a deal, a covenant, a contract. The Abrahamic covenant. A goat, a ram, and a heifer were all sliced in half, spilling their blood to establish God's covenant with Abraham. In Exodus 24, Moses recounts all of God's words and all of God's ordinances that he heard up on the mountain to the people, to God's people. And in Exodus 24, they all respond, and I quote, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Their eventual eventual failure aside, this was not enough. It wasn't just enough that God spoke through Moses and that the people responded. Blood had to be spilt. Sacrifices were brought. And we read that half of the blood was put in basins and the other half was sprinkled on the altar. Why was half put on basins? Because then... They took that blood and sprinkled it, try to visualize, on the people. The hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, were splattered with animal blood to enact, to sign the covenant with God and His people. It was then after it was sprinkled on the altar and the people, 
bringing in both parties. Only after that, when blood was spilt and spread, that Moses declares in Exodus 24, 8, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We've already seen this. This is the new covenant in my blood. Blood was spilt to seal a new covenant, the new covenant. Would you turn quickly with me to Hebrews chapter 9? Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read a large section here, verses 11 through 21, to speak, that speaks of this very reality. And if you're familiar with Hebrews, you know it brings up a lot of Jewish Old Testament illustrations and references which really helps us bring all of this together. Hebrews 9, 11 through 21. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from, the, from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, we just saw this, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. We no longer need to do this because it has been done in Jesus Christ. And not figuratively, my friends, he literally shed his blood for the covenant. Speaking of Israel, Paul goes back to appeal to them. Back in our passage in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 18, he says, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So again, he's just highlighting the same point. Though they were not permanent as Christ is, the sacrifices that the Israelites offered brought them into a spiritual participation in the altar. And if you read back there in how the sacrifices were to be made, part of the offering was offered to God. The priests got a part. Remember, they weren't paid, and so this is how they sustained themselves. And then the person who brought the offering got apart. And the Old Testament scriptures make very clear that any Israelite 
who refused to eat of the sacrifice would be separating himself from the altar of the Lord, which meant separating himself from everything the altar represented. Just as communion does for us, so the altar made Israel different than all the other nations. It made them unique and exclusive in that they were God's people participating in God's sacrifice. And when you want nothing to do with it, and if you refuse to participate, then you're saying, I don't want anything to do with what this represents. And it represents not just the sacrifice of Christ, but our identity with each other, the church. And the point that Paul is making in all of this is not so much the uniqueness of the body of Christ, but the intimacy the intimacy that these seemingly simple elements of a meal bring. Intimacy with Christ, yes, of course, but also with each other. You ever been in a situation where you're in a conversation and you refer to something and no one knows what you're talking about? And one person from across the room looks right at you and go, holds up whatever you're talking about, right? He's like, I got you. I know. And there's like that instant bond because we get it. We need to take communion seriously. Our common bond is, I get partly so these days, but it shouldn't just be in, man, these things are frustrating to open. Two flaps, I can't, things fly all over the place. It should be in the seriousness of what this means and what this has made us, who we are, how we are to treat one another in Christ because of His blood. So what does this mean for the Christian who partakes of the temple meal in an idol's temple? We'll talk about that next week, but to give you a clue, it's not good. We read the passage If you haven't read it before, it's been some time as we read it this morning, it probably struck you. You're looking at everything we've seen in the past weeks, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, he's going to say, don't do this. It's not good. He's going to talk about causing people to stumble again. He's going to talk about just being pure. And then you read, oh, did he just say demons? Yes, he just said demons and not just once. And you can kind of, you, you, you know where he's going with this. If participation in communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's meal, means participation in Jesus Christ and one another, then what does participation in an idol's temple mean? And I remind you, these guys are not worshiping that idol. They're just going because they were invited to a party, which happens to be at the idol's temple, the banquet hall. Where else would you have a big party? You go to an idol's temple. You don't go to the church. They had big churches back then. It was just someone's house. So you go there. Like we, go, we rent a hotel or a rec center. You go to the idol's temple. Sure, it's the meat that they just sacrificed, but I didn't sacrifice it. I didn't go to their worship service. I know Aphrodite is nothing. Zeus is nothing. I'm just eating the meal, and it's always a good meal because they have to bring an unblemished animal. I'm just going to the after party. 
And Paul says, demons. And I don't want to lose sight of the actual context, which is idolatry, but in the broader context, we're talking about gray areas. We're talking about, as we saw in 10.13, any temptation, any sort of sin. So we understand the flea. We understand the identification. Don't participate in any way. Flee that situation, that person, that whatever that is causing you to sin. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. Don't participate with the harlot, as Proverbs calls her. You know, you, you read Proverbs and it says, avoid the harlot, avoid the adulteress, avoid the harlot, right? And it often compares her to wisdom, right? She's crying your name out in the streets. And yes, there was a reference to, uh, you know, actual prostitution and harlotry out there where people would be calling you in and try to tempt you into their home. But you can loosely translate this to anyone who's not your spouse that would sleep with you. Doesn't have to be paid. To be your coworker, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your ex, whatever. Don't play around with this stuff. Don't say, well, I know it's not I'm not even gonna engage with them, I'm not gonna talk to them, but man, I really curious what my ex girlfriend looks like now, and you look her up on Facebook. Don't do that. Don't do that. I heard she went to Hawaii recently. Just maybe see if there's any pictures on the beach. Don't do that. I'm just going to call them. I know I'm upset, but I'm going to... Don't call them. I know, you know, I, I know I get angry and frustrated when I come home and and I, I, I look at all of our bank accounts on the website, and I get frustrated, and I worry, and I, I distrust God every time I go there. But just, just come on. You, you want to go on a date? Let's just, let's just go to the dealership and check out the cars. We're not, obviously, we're not going to buy anything. Just want to look. Don't go there. Don't do it. Stop playing around. Because when we talk about the outworking of this in our day and age, Sure, there's the possibility of eating at an idol's temple, thereby partaking of some form of their idolatry. But the danger of this intimate connection with the world and its false gods, namely things like self, money, and success, immorality, becomes very clear. We must maintain and relish in our fellowship with Christ and each other rather than dabbling with intimacy with the world and the things therein. Whom do you want to be identified with? Jesus Christ and other believers? Or the cool unbeliever? The rich guy? We buy certain things to be identified, hopefully, with certain individuals. I know no one in this church bought a car like this for some reason, but there are people who don't want an electric car, but they buy a Tesla because they want to be identified with a certain billionaire that the world considers a genius. I want to be in his group. 
Right? Yeah, I, I know that's a bad movie, but I want to get the poster because I just want to be identified with that actor, with that studio, with these people. Uh, we get more excited when someone in our workplace, our boss, our company, IPOs or our boss becomes famous and we get more excited about bragging about that than we do about Jesus Christ. We're scared to share the gospel. We'll talk to we're blue in the face about, oh yeah, I know that guy. I met that guy once. Oh man, this was bad when I lived in Los Angeles. If someone was the personal assistant to an A-list celebrity, you would know it because that's the first thing they bring up. Oh, he treats me like trash. In fact, I'm on the way to drop off his urine sample to the doctor. But you know what? I'm his personal assistant. That's That's what the world is interested in. This is what the world wants to brag about. And friends, this is what we want to brag about sometimes. We need to be careful. I get it these days with all the bad press so many supposed Christians are getting. We want to disassociate from them, but forget all the noise. Are you identifying with Christ and His people? Is communion just a thing you do on a monthly basis? Or do you understand and agree with the representation that you are identifying with the death of Christ and with all those who are seated around you and all those around the world proclaiming the name of Christ, regardless of what they're doing, regardless of their peripheral theology and doctrines, regardless of who their favorite politician is, you are identifying with those who are purchased and have committed their lives to the blood and person of Jesus Christ. The weight of that identification must be represented in your heart and mind by the weight of the Lord's table. And again, even if you don't take it, this identification is yours. This is who you are. And of course, he's setting all of this up to talk about the danger of taking the Lord's table one day and then at that evening taken of the idol's table. More next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are not only identified with each other and with you, but that we can be remembered, reminded of that rather every time we take communion. Father, I pray that this would Help us to understand the symbolism, but also the significance of the symbolism of what we do, that we would not take such things lightly. I pray that you would help us to work out in truth, with word and deed, our identification in you and our identification with others, everyone in the church. In Jesus' name. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.